The Internet History Podcast is brought to you by MetaLab. Their slogan is MetaLab, we make interfaces. For a decade, MetaLab has helped some of the world's top companies and entrepreneurs build products that millions of people use every day. You probably didn't realize it at the time, but the odds are you've used an app that they've helped design or build. Apps like Slack, Coinbase, Facebook Messenger, Oculus, Lonely Planet, and many more. MetaLab wants to bring their unique design philosophy to your project. Let them take your brainstorm and turn it into the next billion-dollar app, from idea sketched on the back of a napkin to a final shipped product. Check them out at metalab.co. That's metalab.co. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Brian McCullough. Thank you to everyone who has bought the book over the last week or so. And for those that haven't done so, it's still there. It's called How the Internet Happened, from Netscape to the iPhone. But that's not important. Let's get to today, because today is someone who has obviously been on my list to have on the show from the very beginning. Matt Cutts. If you run in certain circles, then Matt Cutts needs no introduction. He is now the acting administrator of the United States Digital Service. And of course, he was the former head of the web spam team at Google. So buckle up, everybody. This is the most inside anecdotal and personal stuff we've ever gotten for the early history of Google as a company but then also of search as a technology as it's evolved over the last 20 years. And over the years, mutual friends have always told me that Matt Cutts is the most genuine person in the entire tech industry, and I don't think you'll hear anything in this episode to dispute that. So please enjoy this conversation with the great and lovely Matt Cutts. Matt Cutts, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a long time coming. <laughs> it has. Um, so let me start this way. Uh, you went to UK. I did. Both my parents went to UK. <gasps> Go Wildcats, yeah. University of Kentucky. You guys beat the, uh, my Gators this year. <laughs> so I have to say, I have a friend who lives in Nebraska, mm-hmm. which is normally a good football school. Yeah. And they were like zero and four, and Kentucky was like five and zero. Right, right. And we're normally just right. no. we're basketball. We're As a football. Gator fan, that's our guaranteed win every year. <laughs> it's either Vanderbilt or Kentucky. Yes. <laughs> right. So I gave him such a hard time. You know, you just need to switch from Nebraska to, to Kentucky. Well, no, it's good. You know, I, I, I don't begrudge Kentucky having a good team, <laughs> considering my entire adult life has been otherwise. Tune in for the Sports Podcast. That's right. Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's so um, at UK, uh, computer science and math. I was, yes. I realized, you know, you only needed to take like three or four more classes to get not just a separate major, but an actual another degree in math mm. so you could get two degrees not just have a double yeah. major so yeah. i was like all right that's a value let's do that were you into computers and stuff like that as a kid or i was uh my dad got me a, we had a sinclair zx81 okay that's fun yes yep. love and, it and then a commodore 64 mm-hmm. uh and so we actually did well like there was a computer programming team i don't know if that's still a thing as much mm-hmm but uh, Kentucky did something really smart. They had something called Sweet 16, because Sweet 16 was the basketball tournament. Right, right, right. Uh, they had an equivalent academic tournament, including computer programming, and they gave out scholarships to the winners, and our team won, but you could only use it at a Kentucky school. Mm-hmm. So they were like, here's all this scholarship money. You can, you can only use it in Kentucky. And I'm like, well, okay, I'll, I'll go to Kentucky and use that scholarship money. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, you also... Is it around that time that you're doing that stuff with the NSA? Uh, yeah, I actually did co-op tours, basically internships, uh-huh. uh, all th- about four tours during undergrad. So, uh, undergrad at UK. Mm-hmm. How'd you get involved in that? You know, it's interesting. The, uh, the first uh, Gulf War was happening right. around then. And so there was, there was a guy in one of our calculus classes who went over 
to you know Kuwait and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, it was a really interesting time. People were like, "Are they going to draft people? What's going to happen?" And I, you know, I have the world's worst, weakest, weird body, but uh, my brain is okay. And it sounded like a really interesting job too. Mm. So, um, so decided to apply and and got to go up to um, Maryland. You know, for several semesters and see what that was like. So you do like a little work and then go back and do schooling and you do a semester on and then you gotcha. do a semester of school and then you do a semester at work and you do a semester of school and it's it's I will say it's a fascinating job because you can't take your work home with you. Right. You know, it's classified and you're the yeah. intern, so you can't even work late. They're like, we're kicking you out. So you know, we played volleyball and went hiking and had a lot of fun. You know, during some of the summers. It's there. funny. I have a good friend that worked there in the seventies, um, spying on the East German. She <laughs> speaks German, uh-huh. and uh, she describes it as the most fun job that she's ever had. And I was like, "Well, tell me why I can't." Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so then uh, you go to UNC. Yep, North Carolina Chapel Hill. Did you? Finish getting a PhD or I did not. Uh, I was ABD all but dissertation. Gotcha. Got everything else done. All right. I might, maybe I'm jumping ahead. So mm. what are, what are you studying there? Uh, it was computer science, right? Kind of computer graphics and how do you track people as they move around in virtual environments? And you, that's where you get into information retrieval and. Well, so I had to take UNC is a liberal arts college. Mm-hmm. They want you to take a couple classes outside of your area. Uh, and so I looked for the closest thing that I could find that was not directly computer science, and it was information and library science, mm-hmm. and took both classes the summer of 1999, mm. and they both happened to be on search engines. And that was also when you're doing a lot of research as a grad student, and you know, Hotbot was pretty good, mm-hmm. and then you come across this Google thing, and it's way better. And so, like, luck and a whole lot of privilege and just a bunch of stuff lined up where I was able to see, hey, this Google thing is is really good and also appreciated on a technical basis when it had, you know, 25, 50 employees. But it wasn't that that was what you were studying and then that's what no. led you to Google. No, it no. Was... We, we did write like a, a mock little search engine with term frequency and inverse document frequency, but I was, I was a computer graphics geek. Mm. You know, I went to SIGGRAPH every year, the big graphics mm-hmm. conference. Mm-hmm. So. You worked at a, a game company or game engine too at some point? I did. It was, I think Numerical Design Limited. So it was sort of an offshoot of some of the computer science people. And it was uh, they made a game engine that they then licensed to other people. So are you recruited by Google or do you <laughs> recruit Google? Uh, I went right through the front door. So I was working on a, one PhD topic and I decided to switch topics and advisors and so, you know, you reach this natural lull where you're like, what am I doing with my life? And you see this Google thing that's doing pretty well, and the dot-com craziness was happening. And there's another little side story where somebody offered me 100 shares of VA Linux, which mm. I squandered and did not redeem. What which... do you mean offered it? Like, here, So uh, okay, so <laughs> Literally, they did. So uh, uh, I had worked on some documentation in Linux, like a little mini how-to about how to use recordable CD writers. Because mm. back then, they cost like $6,000. Yeah, yeah. So I wrote, like, here's how to do it. Uh, well, there was a program at VA Linux where they were like, if there's somebody who's contributed to the Linux kernel or documentation, we will give them some friends and family shares. Mm. And so they emailed me kind of out of the blue because you know, this was my you know, email that had contributed to Linux. And they're like, hey, we'd like to give you 100 shares of VA Linux. And there was some attachment with a PDF. And I was like, I'll fill this out eventually. And then like a month or two later, I see this news headline that VA Linux has gone public and gone to $300 a share. And I go back and I'm like, that would have been worth $30,000. And I was getting paid about $15,000 on my my fellowship. And I was like, I just made a mistake that cost me two years of salary because I didn't, you know, handle an attachment on email correctly. And that's when I was like, there's something going on in Silicon Valley. I need to figure out what's going on here. So this is like 99, 98. Yeah, 99. Um, so you said you walked in through the front door. What does that mean? Well, in the middle of switching my PhD topic, I, you know, I, I knew Google was this really amazing quality of search engine. So I sent basically an email to like jobs at Google. I was like, out of curiosity, how much do you guys pay? <laughs> uh, and they wrote back and they were like, well, I'm sorry, we don't discuss salary unless we're in active negotiations with a candidate. And I was like, oh, oh okay. And I went back to my PhD topic. 
And like three days later, they wrote back and they're like, well, do you want to be in active negotiations? <laughs> I'm like, come on. Take you, that, the hint. That, yeah, yeah, take the hint. And back, well, now they get two million resumes a year. Right. But at that point, they actually cared about every... And I was a geek. I worked hard. I had the 4.0 GPA. So it, you know, it, it worked out well. I think I, was, I got phone screened by Marissa Meyer. Mm-hmm. Um, I was probably one of the first people that they flew in as opposed to hiring locally or mm-hmm. from Stanford. And is it, uh, you know, there's all these legends about the, the interview process. Did you have to do both Larry and Sergey? Did you have to have people sign off? Everyone has to sign off on you, all that stuff? <laughs> uh, they might have, Larry and Sergey might have passed off, uh, you know, checked off on me off later. But I went through a big interview panel but never had Larry or Sergey directly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they had just started to have this little catered lunch thing. Uh, with Charlie Ayers. Uh, he's, been on the, he's been on the pod. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I did have, I, for lunch, I had read all the PageRank papers. Mm-hmm. So I, I take my little lunch tray and there's Larry Page sitting at a table. And so I sit down next to him and start geeking out about all the papers. Mm-hmm. So maybe that helped. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just, just like a very rigorous interview process and Somebody was like, how is your Unix? And I'm like, my Unix Kung Fu is strong or something like that. And, you know, we went through all the examples. Two things to point out here, though. So this is basically your first real job. Yes. And also, you you weren't even aware, seemingly, of the dot-com bubble happening. So going out to Silicon Valley, like, (laughs) you know, like, it it just seems like, wow, that's a, you're starting at really heady. Yes. (laughs) Well, and at the time, everybody's like, this time it's different. The Dow's right, going right, to 500,000, right. you right. know. Um, no, it was funny because I, you know, my so my girlfriend at the time, later my wife, was like, I am not going to go out to the West Coast mm-hmm. without a ring on my finger. Nah, and I was yeah. like, okay, tell you what, we were planning to get married in June of 2000. I'm like, okay, let's just go down to the courthouse. Let's elope. Get married super quick. Take a quick honeymoon. I'll quit my PhD program. You quit your job. We'll pack yeah. everything up. We'll move you're, across You're quitting the your PhD program for yeah. this too. This <laughs> this is really heady stuff. Well, it was. A, I could like go on suspension and come yeah, back. Yeah, so yeah. that there was, but like five out of the most stressful things you could experience in your life, we all did in January of 2000. Um, and then in March of 2000, the bubble started to pop, and I was like, oh, what have I done? Uh, Okay, well, let's let's do a couple contextual questions then around that. So, uh, how many people you think? A couple hundred are at Google at that point. I was number seventy-one. Where's where are they located at this point? Uh, everybody's in Mountain View. Right. We had three people start the day I started, and that was a record at the time. People uh-huh. were like, "Oh, three people today!" Oh. Um, what what are, what is it like? Again, you don't have any other previous context for mm-hmm. what the work environment is like. <laughs> if you can put yourself back into the mindset of January two thousand, what was what was it like? Uh, yeah. Well, on one hand, it it was a very frugal company. I could tell stories about that, but it was still less frugal than you know, a state computer science sure. school. So I remember, you know, talking to the comptroller and I was like, hey, I, I need to do a long distance call to my parents during work hours for this weird reason. H- how do I pay you back? Hmm. And he just looked at me like, you don't, <laughs> don't worry about it. You know, it, you know, you don't have to pay 10 cents for a copy, anything like that. Yeah. Um, all of the massages and the snacks and that stuff, I mean, it, it got a little excessive later on like you know let's wheel a cart around and have tea at 4 p.m that kind of thing um but it felt very natural and organic like they were just trying to take care of the workers Mm -hmm. at the time um it was you know it was so small that there was a building the zeroplex and they weren't in the whole building they were on the top floor and they weren't in the whole top floor they were in half of the top floor it was the other half uh i don't remember I could you know we could probably, probably went away within a couple months anyway yeah, yeah, yeah exactly well and Google completely lucked out in a lot of ways the dot-com crash meant fantastic programmers available on the cheap great real estate also available on the cheap like the timing of all that was perfect as you've mentioned in your other mm-hmm. podcast about the, the, the raising the round million. yeah right yeah. Um, but it was it was wild because my cubicle was you know 20 feet from Larry and Sergey's office and I remember at some point they were like We've got enough people, Larry and Sergey. You're on the road and doing things a lot. Do you mind just sharing an office? And so they were like, "Okay, that seems fine." Mm-hmm. Uh, but within 20 seconds, you could be in anybody's office in the company at that point. And what's your? Um, what are you hired to do? What's your initial remit? Uh, <laughs> 
they don't they d never did it like that they're like really? let's find super smart people so they hire you and they sell you on working there but you're not they're not saying Matt, you're going to do this, and this will be the project for the next two years. Yeah, that, that would have been a good question for me to ask. <laughs> um, but I don't think they would have told me because they didn't know. Right. Um, I remember I went out, I flew out by myself, and I, I talked to my uh, girlfriend at the time on the phone, and they, they put me up in a pretty seedy hotel, you know, so I was a little glad that she hadn't come along because they were super frugal. Uh, and so it was definitely a leap of faith. Um, the first major project that I got asked to do was... Uh, what later became Safe Search, Google's family filter. Um, and so I was sitting in my cubicle, and my manager came to my area and said, Hey, Matt, how do you feel about porn? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, That depends. Why are you asking? Right, right. And she said, Well, we've got a client, because Google syndicated search at that time, who wants a family safe version of Google. Would you be able to make one? And I was like, I can try to do that, sure. And so, like, but again, this is a cultural question. So they ask you if you want to do that, and then do they give you marching orders, or is it just like, well, Matt, figure out how to build your team? And oh, it was not. It was not. A, nothing was a team at that point. Everything mm. was single people. You know, Gmail in two thousand four was right. like Paul Bukite working for a long time. Um, There's a great interview with Paul that just popped this morning about uh, his about his early days too. Oh, Look for that when cool. we're done. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, it was wild to be there at a point where every single person eventually became an entire department, mm. you know, or or you know, mini army. And is it that? And, and do they allow people to naturally find what yeah. they're interested in and good at? Yeah, mostly yes. So uh, Larry seemed to have the attitude that you have smart engineers and they will mostly figure out uh, where to go. But they they wanted it super flat. So Wayne Rosing, the first VP of engineering, at one point he was the VP, and there were a hundred people under him, which there's no way he can keep an eye on everybody. But they just sort of had the idea that people will figure out what's most important. Um, there are some counterexamples to that. So the very first ski trip that happened, um, or the first one I went on, uh, everybody fit on one bus, and I was on a ski lift with a manager, and she said, hey, Matt, what do you think about front-end programming, you know, interface stuff? And I was like, yeah, that sounds cool, that sounds cool. Uh, and then, like, we got back, and a week later, this person was like, okay, Matt said that he's all right to join the ads group. I was like, wait, no, I don't, I don't remember, no, that's, we didn't. <laughs> and then I was in the ads group for about a year. Okay, give me a second. <laughs> uh, let's go back to uh, Safe Search, Family Search. What yeah. um, so you're basically playing whack-a-mole with porn results that come up. So it was interesting. Uh, I looked at what everybody else was doing. Take a company like AltaVista. They had... Um, a whitelist-based approach. What does that mean? That means if you search for sex, they would give you 20 results, and that was it. Like, you, there was no next button. Mm. It was, here are the 20 that we have selected. And, and Google can sometimes be arrogant, but they very much had the attitude that we can do things better. And so uh, my thought was, no, we should have all of the information available and then just pull out the information that's objectionable. So I tried to write a classifier where... Uh, 10, 12-year-old kid could be searching with their mom right behind them and wouldn't get shocked. So breast could return breast cancer. Sex could return sex education. Mm -hmm. So trying to write a classifier to find egregiously bad pornographic results while allowing medical and other sorts of things. To so the, I, I was just wondering if that was what maybe was your entree into spam stuff. Is yeah. that sort of work? Yes. Okay. I, could, I could... The gory details, I can tell you... So... I wrote my classifier. I was like, I was very proud of it because it had a thing that said, if you have a certain amount of page rank, you're okay. So mm -hmm. Playboy, for example, you might go ahead and return because maybe it's for the articles or something right, like right. that. So there was this one thing that said, if you have enough page rank, you're probably safe, which also helped with false positives. So then I did a search and I found a porn site. And I was like, there's all these words on here that definitely would have made sure it was mm -hmm. triggered as porn. So why didn't I catch it? And the answer is, it had a ton of page rank. Mm. I was like, well, that's weird. Why would anybody link to this porn site? And these, this is like the W3C, mm. you know, like really reputable yeah. sites. Um, I still remember the domain name. It was forestech.com. And so I looked into this site, and it turns out it used to be a reputable site uh -huh. that web standards bodies would link to, and then somebody didn't pay their domain right. registration fee. Right. And then somebody bought it and turned it into pornography. And it was like a light bulb went off. I was like, Google can be spammed. There are ways right. to cheat Google. And 
at the time, like, Sergey had gone to a search conference and been like, you can't spam Google, so feel free to try. There's no such thing <laughs> as spamming Google, which all the search engine optimizers love to point to and be like, ha, right, ha, right, ha, right, right. Google's founder said it was okay to try. Uh, and so I remember having an, art- uh, an argument with Craig Silverstein, employees, you know, number one at Google, that was like, Google's going to get spammed. There's going to be real problems. Uh, and he was like, no, no, you just solve this expired domain thing and then you're fine. Uh, and I was like, mm, I, this, mm. so it was a little lonely and for two or three years. But that was that was definitely my entree into spam. We'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah. It, just as an aside, I'm curious when you see all these companies trying to deal with fake news and all these, like, yeah, like, you, you should you should see he just threw his head back in deep laughter. Uh, I have thoughts. You, I have, have thoughts. Maybe we'll come back to that hmm. then. Um, okay, okay, okay. Um, so you do a year uh, on the ads team, and I'm guessing this is when AdWords is just beginning. There were five people on the ads team. Got any good stories about that? Sure. I mean, we all had to carry a pager around, and there was like one machine that really mattered. It's F41. It's like seared into my brain because mm-hmm. they were assigned by alphabet and then number. And so I was, you know, on a date with my wife at Outback Steakhouse, and we had literally just gotten there, and we're just about to sit down, and the pager went off, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry, honey. We didn't have cell phones back then. I'm like, I have to drive back and mm-hmm. reboot the server. Um, but, um, yeah, it was... So Jeff uh, Dean and Marissa Meyer had written the first version of Google's ad system, and then there were about... There were five of us. It was literally five of us that kept things going but at one point Larry had kind of this crazy idea he wanted to prototype ads where you could kind of do a self-service sort of thing Mm -hmm. Um, because originally like Tim Armstrong is here with an actual ad team mm -hmm. a sales team right yeah selling CPM based ads uh, and you know you talk you covered really well how the transition to Mm -hmm. cost per click happened uh, but so Larry said, okay, I want you to prototype something. P- try putting the ads over on the right-hand side. And so here's the, you know, what we want it to look like. So here's the HTML to generate it. So I wrote all the code. Um, and then we, we, there are ways where you can run an experiment. So you take like 2% of the traffic. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you, mm-hmm. and I actually did, I made an, a mistake when I set up that experiment because not many people would see it or click through on it. So I actually opened it up to a lot of traffic, like mm-hmm. 30% of people <laughs> instead of 2%. And I, I turned off caching. Mm-hmm. And so I almost caused Google to melt down that day. Uh, not the only time I've done that. but <laughs> um, And I remember that we got the results. And yeah. I took the results back. And I, I remember there were like three different ads. One was for pool tables. One was for, I think, like a PlayStation. And we we go to this meeting and... Basically, Larry and, and Marissa are looking at the results, and Marissa's like, the click-through is too low. This is going to annoy users. We should just not do this. Mm. And Larry was, he saw a glimmer, I think. He was like, yeah, the click-through is low, but maybe people would optimize for that, or maybe we could tweak that. So I still think there's something here. Mm. Uh, and so that's what basically became the self-service AdWords on the right-hand side. That's interesting that... The initial results were low. I've said mm-hmm. on this show before, like I had been using GoTo and other things before. Yeah. Um, so in my memory, the very first day I could do AdWords, I did it. Mm-hmm. And I've said before, I built my first company 100% on AdWords. But like, so from day one, it was obviously we got results. So maybe I got in at later iterations of this. But... Well, I think you were smart and have the natural instincts of what people want or a marketer. But imagine if a random engineer who didn't know yeah. that this was going to change the course of the company wrote the text mm. and the call to I action. I see, I see, I see. And so, you know, people who know what gotcha. people are looking for, you get good ROI and good clicks. But we were like, buy a PlayStation, you know, right, or right, like, right. check out pool tables here. Oh, uh, listen, Matt, for I, for years, <laughs> I could get eight cents a click for the keyword resume because it was, it was yeah. resumewriters.com. Yeah. And then a couple years in, Monster started to, Monster woke up and he, Eight cents was gone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and what I loved about AdWords is it was a great equalizer. It was Mm -hmm. like mammals versus dinosaurs because you were clearly a mammal. If you were smart, you could could innovate in all these ways. I remember the very first AdWord that came in from the outside world was a guy who I believe shipped lobsters from Maine. Mm -hmm. You know, and 
you're never going to have a sales force in New York call up a little that tiny guy to yeah. sell Maine lobsters. Yeah. So you could almost immediately, once it went live, you could see the promise and the potential. And you know, when it does take off, you know, this is another contextual question, but you know, the stories I've heard is that this is working. Don't tell. <laughs> yes. Yes. For how long was that? Right up until the IPO. Yeah. And yeah. even after the IPO, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, it was very much the case of like we have somehow this golden goose landed on the table in front of us, and we were smart enough to recognize that it was a golden goose. Um, don't tell anybody else that there's a golden goose right here. Mm-hmm. Like as as you mentioned, David Crane is like unlocking one of the powers of the internet of mm-hmm. how to monetize and and also have people love it, right? Uh, which is incredible, um, and you can feel good about it. like four years. And I still believe this. I think targeted. Ads in response to something that somebody's looking for can Intent. be incredibly yeah. useful. Right. You know, it's not annoying. It's not spamming you with something irrelevant to what you want. Right, right. Well, and I've said before also that it, it was a perfect three-way market because the users actually enjoy the ads because they're right. relevant. Yeah. I'm paying less yeah. if my ad performs better. Yeah. And you guys are making more because the ads are performing better, yeah. And the, in the introduction of the quality score, so right. it wasn't just whoever's willing to pay the most, it was also... Do people like, you know, that ad and that product and that domain? Yeah. Um, So you were on that team for about a year. And then I clawed my way back. I was like, I went to Wayne. I was like, Wayne, there's going to be spam problems. People are going to figure out how to, you know. So can I ask you a question? Because, like, again, I'm old enough to remember tricks like uh, on a a page with a white background and white text, Mm -hmm. put all your spam... So it's not like this was invented after Google, right? Like, no. So, but Google wasn't really wasn't really aware or prepared for what was going to come. Well, Google can be arrogant. I, they I thought think they had fixed it. They thought they had fixed it because Alta Vista, all you know, all the there and there were tons. Northern Light. There were so right, many search yeah. engines. None of all of them had relevance, which is are the words on the page. You know, you type in mesothelioma and the word mesothelioma is on the page they had no idea on the dimension of authority mm-hmm. and so page rank gave you authority and so the thinking was that you know a magazine is never going to risk its own reputation mm-hmm. by doing seedy tricks like right. white text on a white right. background right. and that that assumption held true for many years yeah. it was just i because of working with with porn and spam and, and uh-huh. that sort of stuff, I got to see it a little bit earlier than a lot of people did. So you saw the indicators, but also maybe this was just an instinct that you're like, once you see that there's a trick that can... Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And it, I have to admit, it was a lonely time because uh, a few of us could see that that this wave of spam was going to come. I mean, there's now like over 2 million people who list search engine optimization as right. a skill on LinkedIn. Um and honestly, Larry and Sergey persisted in feeling like, no, we're fine, to the point where at one point we had a meeting and they said, you know, if eight out of the top ten results for antique green glass are from one company, then yes, you can take action. But failing that, we want you to back off. And that was super hard because basically we took it all the way up to the founders and the founders were like, no, stop wasting your time on this. Mm. So. I had to step back and wait and let things get worse and worse and break mm. to the point where it was when Orkut rolled out mm. that Larry Page always reads Slashdot a lot. Yeah. And everybody on Slashdot was like, why are you rolling out some weird new social network when the quality of the results just sucks? And that was that was when he flipped and declared a code yellow. And so what, like, what year is that? I want to say like 2005. There, yeah, those were... There were a few hard years there. So you you mentioned uh, you know take action. So like <clears throat> in those days, if there's something particularly egregious, you literally just take a manual action. Yeah. Well, the first goal of Google is always to be as scalable as possible. Right. So you try to write an algorithm that that's says that's right. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Here's the here's the here's the best way to take care of this stuff. But. Um, but we were the you know you couldn't really call it a web spam team. There was mm-hmm. a ragged band of you know four or five of us who who felt this way. We're like, look, if you search for uh, you know something related to medical stuff and you get commercial spam, like that hurts your trust in the whole search engine. So we were willing to take manual action. That has been like a very controversial thing within Google um, to the point where you know it it waxes and wanes. Um, 
but what we figured out is you try to do as much as you can in a scalable way with right. algorithms. And then there's an amazingly dedicated team of people who operate under very clear guidelines. And if something violates those guidelines, then you're like, mm -hmm. okay, then you are allowed to remove it. So you mentioned um, the code whatever. Yeah. Is that when you are finally officially knight <laughs> knighted with this <laughs> duty? Not exactly. So code red is when like site is down, yeah. ads are not serving. Code yellow is something is bad. We need to have a war room. Larry did declare a code yellow. Um, I think... Uh, at one point they were like, okay, you got to fix spam, but they just said, we want to reduce spam by 50%. They mm. do this thing called OKRs, Objectives and Key Results. And so they set a goal, like spam should go down by 50%. But they didn't really assign it to anybody. Nobody told me I had to work on it. So I was like, all right, this is going to be interesting. Let's see what happens. And spam didn't go down. Uh, and then Ors Holsley, who is a very respected VP of engineering at Google, um, I think it was late in 2004, was like, hey, Matt, Bearing in mind that you can't say no, would you like to run the web spam team? And I was like, like I fell for it. I was like, oh, well, you said I couldn't say no, so I guess I have to now become a manager, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so at that point, Google was like, okay, Matt, you are the person responsible and your team for getting this to happen. And I've, I've had the luck of working with great people, and so then the team was established. So then, and maybe not either, the answer can be at first it was like this or whatever, but so then you guys find things that are happening mm -hmm. and you come up with possible scalable solutions that you can insert into the algorithm and so then you go to the algorithm team and you're like no we were the algorithm team okay. I, it, for a long time it was very, okay so there's this virtuous cycle I, what i'm what i'm getting at is yeah. so it's all one team like there's yeah. not well we do we just do the the results we do the spam we do the like so uh, there was a quality team, mm -hmm. and it was established, uh, you know, after, like early 2001 or something. This was, there was like eight of us, and we could fit around a ping pong table. This mm -hmm. is, I had just recently clawed my way out of ads. And so we worked on quality writ large, you yeah. know, and there's, there's a lot of things that needed to be fixed. And it included everything from optimizing the algorithm to run faster to, you know, uh, general overall quality. And I kind of specialized. I got focused on the spam aspect. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, we could change any part of the algorithm. There was there was not really an evaluation group that was a separate group that you know we would take a change and hand it right, to them right. until later. Okay. So, um, so is it also around the same time that what you intuited would come true is starting to come true, where there is an entire industry that is being built around this? Yeah, there there were always search conferences that yeah. were happening uh, and so it was it was funny like um, a lot of engineers at Google just enjoy showing up doing the, the project that they're working on and going home and don't even really want to rabble rouse and say we ought to work on X or I want to work on Y or go to a conference and talk about it and get feedback and I had done some public speaking before and I had a, a good story with uh, the fact that I had actually eloped to mm -hmm. join Google. Mm -hmm. So they had me tell that story to a few reporters, which led to a little more kind of engineering spokesperson role. And then I had also been hanging out online on this forum called Webmaster World, right. and I posted as Google guy. I've been there for 20 years, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so we would hear the feedback at conferences or online, and then take that and try to improve our algorithms to make Google work better. Um, but when actually... SEO as an industry, how do I want to ask this? Like, what do you guys think of it as first? At first, when you're like, because it is an entire industry now, where mm -hmm. pe there's entire companies mm -hmm. making hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, yeah. Um, on the one hand, if you're Google, you can say, well, these are people that are trying to surface mm -hmm. results. Mm -hmm. The other way to look at it is these are people that are trying to game our system. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yep. Is there a tendency maybe to be antagonistic to this growing community? That's a fantastic question. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. On the way over here, I noticed there's an internet marketing company in this building, for mm. example. Um, a lot, I used to run new hire, new engineer orientation. Well, there were a bunch of us, and I would you know, occasionally fill in. Um, and so I would talk about SEO. And a lot of folks would come in with an antagonistic attitude, like, this is just making everything worse. And going back to this VP of engineering, Oris Holsley, he had a really good attitude. He basically said, look, 
if you are a small business, of course you are going to try to do whatever you can to make sure that your business is best represented. You're going to hustle, you're going to be innovative, you're going to be creative, you might show up you know, outside of a competitor's conference and hold up your billboard mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. So he was like, that's human nature and you shouldn't really get on to people for trying to do that. And I think that that was a really healthy reminder and from then on, we'd, you know, these are not necessarily black hats, people mm -hmm. who cheat and break all the rules and are horrible and you know, doing illegal things. There are some of those people, but for the most part, it's more like small business owners who are just trying to do as best a job as they can. Well, and you even said uh, when we were talking about the ads, like, you know, I would have written a better ad than an exactly. engineer. Because I'm wanting to promote and I'm yeah. wanting to sell the product in the best possible way. Exactly. So, so one thing Google has done very well is try to take a long-term view. Like, you know, uh, for example, there was a credit card company that allegedly offered... Five or ten million dollars if they would just put a link to that credit card company on the bottom of the Google mm -hmm, homepage, mm -hmm. and Google was smart enough to say, "No, we're not going to do that." Right. <clears throat> so Google has done a very good job of aligning its long-term interests with the interests of users first and foremost, and then many of those users are also marketers, and they have the skills to actually write the better copy for AdWords that gets you know is more interesting. There is always a small percentage of people who are like. Yeah, okay, I don't really care how I get the money. I'm just going to get the money. I'm going to buy this multi-level marketing thing or I'm going to, you know, try to scam people. So, we try to make sure that that does not succeed. But even from the beginning, I think Google tried to have a very clear eye that like a lot of this is, is small businesses trying to actually do a good thing mm -hmm. and channel and enable that energy so that everybody wins. So, you you're running this team for what, the better part of 15 years. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Just from a, I don't know, a psychological or process mm -hmm. basis, you know, is it is it sort of like, uh, this is the wrong analogy, cops staying ahead of the criminals, because as we're saying, that's not how Google thinks of it. Mm -hmm. But, okay, there's this new thing that people are doing, and then tomorrow there's this <laughs> new, th like, is it always just, again, whack-a-mole, and like, we got to stay one step ahead of how things are evolving, and... At the time, especially in the early days, I tried to pretend to myself, and I think I believed, no, we could completely solve all of this particular type of problem and, and that particular type of problem. Um, looking back, uh, there was a lot more kind of like, okay, there's a fire, you go put out the fire, uh -huh. it's 80% out, and yeah. then, but there's another fire over here, so you got to go put out that fire. Um, and so, you know, you might fix guest books, to, but did you fix guest books in foreign languages, you know, mm -hmm. and those kinds mm -hmm. of things. Um, and, and to the companies and the, the team's credit, like they have worked to become more scalable over time. And so in those early days, it was a little like, uh, everything's on fire and you got to triage a little bit. But Google's instinct is to try to figure out how can you be scalable and be fair. Right. But that's interesting, again, psychologically. At the beginning, you maybe thought this was a problem that you can solve someday. <laughs> I looked back on my, I had written some objectives and key results that I looked at before I left the company. And, you know, I was like, in one quarter, I'm going to solve these six <laughs> problems. And I'm like, those six problems bedeviled us for the next 12 years. Right, right. So, uh, yeah. Um, you being the public face, mm -hmm. you said that Google had kind of already previously put you out there a little bit. Mm -hmm. But you become the public face I think to, that overstates it a little bit. But Maybe. To, to webmasters, to this SEO sure. community. Yeah, okay. You're internet famous. I mean, <laughs> micro internet famous. But, you, but for being internet famous. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, again, was that something that evolved or. Yeah, it was interesting because I started out as Google Guy, posted on Webmaster World, and after a while realized, you know what? If I'm not a moderator on this forum, and I'm not, they can sort of edit and tweak the threads or move some threads higher or lower or bury some threads. And so around 2005, I was like, I should start a blog. And so I ended up you know, starting, starting a web blog and, and wrote about a thousand posts or so. Um, and then after a while, maybe, I don't know exactly when, tried Webmaster Videos. And that was great because we could film like 50, 60, 70 videos in one day. Mm -hmm. So the first time we did it, we filmed 20 videos in one day. And I wore the same like red polo shirt for all of them. And people got super, 
super frustrated with that. They were like, <laughs> why are you wearing the same shirt? Uh, so then all of a sudden you got to get a wardrobe budget. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I just brought in my closet and, I, and every five videos or six videos I'd change shirts. And then we'd mix them up a little Maybe bit. Maybe get a different haircut. Maybe <laughs> sort of do this. Part the other side. Yeah. And sometimes you got to get a little crazy, you know. <laughs> so there's a few whimsical videos in there. Uh, but what was wild is that meant that a few people got to know what I looked like. Right. And so, like, went to a trip to to uh, see some folks in India in 2011 and, and got recognized by an SEO before I got out of the airport. And that's where I was like, oh, this is a little... Hmm. This doesn't scale well. This is a little too much focus on Matt. We need to get like a broader team, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and so trying to spread that around a little bit. Which brings me to Barry Schwartz's specific question: <laughs> Is um, how did you personally or the team deal with you know people in especially the SEO community are not happy with mm. decisions that or feel that Google is unfair or whatever? How did how do yeah. you how did you guys deal with sometimes the antagonistic response from webmasters you know um i just have the the most respect for so many people who are trying to to do the best they can for their business and so in any even if somebody is so angry they're ready to like you know they're basically spitting while they're yelling like in your face like i honestly believe the reason that they're so angry is there is a kernel of something Mm. that they have a point about and we need to go find that kernel so I had a nice long time to build up a thick skin, you know, on, mm-hmm. online and then on my blog and, um, and then through videos and stuff. So I think I've only gotten like two or three kind of like serious death threats. For the most part, people are like, look, I am super frustrated and mm-hmm. I am trying to be civil, but I am incredibly frustrated and here's what I think. And, and trying to acknowledge that they probably have some sort of point or, you know, what can we pull out of there? to then help more broadly, not just that specific situation. So I think, you know, according people the respect and then you all, you usually get that respect back. Yeah, this is why people think you're a saint in some way. <laughs> um, okay, but what about not the little guys? What, because there's that period of time when there are entire publicly traded companies that are built on the traffic, yeah. the, the clickbaity headlines and things like that. Uh-huh. And, and so Google makes changes that then yeah take those companies away. And yeah. they're not a lot around to a large degree at this point. Yeah. Uh, I was talking last week with somebody um, who used the phrase legibility of intent, mm. um, which I think is such a great idea because even suppose you take the Panda update, which was fundamentally about content farms, but also about higher quality content. Um, and as a result, you know, a lot of those folks ended up moving to other places, to Facebook and to other sorts of things. When we issued the Panda update, we also did a blog post that talked about the kinds of sites that we wanted to return. So, you know, trustworthy sites, something you could imagine being in a magazine, something you could imagine giving your credit card to. And so you don't tell people exactly what it is you're looking for, but you tell them where you want to go. Mm. And again, Google's long-term interest is in making users happy and helping them find what they want or giving them information about what they want. And so reminding people, look, you might have founded this public company and, and believe you can just churn out, you know, 25 cent articles and you found the magic gold, but that is inevitably going to lead to lower quality, which is going to lead to a bad user experience. And so if you go back to that, that well, that touchstone of user experience, that is why we have to take action on these sites. And so people don't like it, but I think when you remind them, look, the quality matters, and if this whole ecosystem gets diluted with misinformation, fake news, bad quality content that you can't trust, then nobody trusts the web, and then, you know, it's a loss for everybody. So I think trying to provide those goalposts about this is why we got to get here. And with Panda, like, it actually caused enough of a material hit to Google's earnings that they had to disclose that in an earnings call. And, I, you know, I'm still a, a big idealist in a, in a lot of ways about the way that Google is internally. And the fact that Google was willing to say, hey, we're going to take that, you know, X many hundred million dollar hit because we think it's better long term for the publisher ecosystem and the web. You know, yes, some companies got hurt. But I think you can agree that we're, you know, the, the intent is noble to try to get a mm-hmm. good user experience. Um uh, historical almost question about the algorithm without mm-hmm. suggesting oh give away the, the secret sauce or whatever yeah. but Larry and Sergey's original 
stuff. How much of that is still in there, or is it all, it's moved on to machine learning and AI and everything now? Uh, I think there is a lot of machine learning, uh, but um, in the early early days, uh, Amit Singhal, as the head of search, had some really interesting insights. Um, if you let neural networks do everything, then when there's a bad result, you don't know exactly why it happened. Mm. And so decoupling things into specific boxes, and then you can say, okay, this is my box that deals with text on the page, which you might have a sub box that's like, how much do you wait adjacent terms or something. Having things that are human understandable is super important. And then you might use machine learning to tune the weights of those boxes. Um, and I suspect they've probably gone even further uh, in recent years since I've left. But there was a lot of emphasis on having things be able where the search engineers could take a bad example, figure out what had happened, and then be able to improve that for the next iteration. Um, but that original PageRank paper, mm -hmm. search as a technology has almost, mm -hmm. we're generations beyond that at this point. Generations, but the, the intent is still the same. I mean, mm. if you think about returning a result and you have the mental model of balancing how relevant is it and how authoritative it is, that's a pretty good mental yeah. model that's kind of you know stood the test of time. Um, I'm going to get us up to today, so, mm -hmm. so we're, we're, we're coming to a landing. <laughs> um, do you still keep a, a toe in things like how search is evolving, and are you still interested in that to any degree? I'm still interested. I have mostly unfollowed all the search engine optimizers on Twitter, mm. uh, and, and I sort of replaced that with comedians. I was like, I need a not quite so dark view of like, ah, some update happened and everything is, is gone out the window. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it is. I, I still do have this corner of my brain mm -hmm. that I think will always be interesting. Well, like things like moving to, to voice search and like yeah. the, the most recent thing was like search. We want to give you an answer before you even think to ask the question and that sort of stuff. Yeah. You're still interested in that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's. I, I remember joining Google and they were like, you know, here's our mission statement organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. And in 1999, that is just staggering in its mm -hmm. ambitiousness. And the fact that Google has grown beyond that, they're like, oh yeah, also self-driving cars. Right. You know, is a, is a testament to a lot of great people at the company, but like organizing the world's information, making it universally accessible and useful, like, that is, that's a good, that is a, a meaty problem to tackle. And I think for the most part, they've done pretty well on it. And now uh, Danny has sort of, he's not exactly the new Matt Cutts, as they right. constantly say. Right, right. But he's sort of the face now, so. He is. He and can handle all that. I, I think it is important for Google to be able to acknowledge that it needs to listen to the outside world. And, you know, there's a lot of smart people at Google. They can sometimes get a little arrogant. But um, but for the most part, um, you need that feedback that you get from conferences online makes a huge difference in being able to say, okay, here's a tiny mom and pop shop. Think about the impact that you have on them. All right, Acting Administrator of the United States Digital Service. Yes. Uh, I, I read you said you had been thinking about this for a while mm -hmm. in the sense that I want, I want to serve, I want to do service. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. My, my wife said, look, we said we'd do this Google thing for four or five years. It's, it's been 15 years. When, when are we going to do something kind of fun? And I said, yeah, okay, that's fair. Uh, why don't you pick what's next and we'll go do that. And I thought she might say New York, where we are, or Seattle, or London, or Portland. Uh, and she said Omaha, Nebraska, mm -hmm. because that's where her family is. So we spent um, close to a year in Omaha, Nebraska. And then I was like, you know what? Omaha is great. There's wonderful people here, but I really want to... I've been seeing great people in D.C. tackling important problems, and I just want to try it for three Because this was like the uh, healthcare.org, yeah, fixing that stuff. The, yes, the U.S. Digital Service is the group of geeks that helped rescue healthcare.gov. Gotcha. So imagine firefighters coming in and fixing federal systems when, like, a visa system goes down at the State Department, right. you know, for two weeks hard. Uh, and so I said, okay, I'm just going to try this for three weeks, or three months. Um, and the guy, I started at the Pentagon, uh -huh. and, the, and the, the head of the agency there, uh, Chris Lynch, um, called up and said, you know, if you start a week early, we're going to Afghanistan. So do you want to start a week early? <laughs> 
And I walked out of my study and said it again to my wife. I was like, so I, if I start a week early, I can go to Afghanistan. And she was like, yeah, do it, do it. And uh, in three months, I just got really hooked. So I, knew, I renewed for another three months. Mm -hmm. Then the election happened. Um, the previous administrator of the U.S. Digital Service was a political appointee. And so they asked, would you be willing to continue to serve and make sure that we can keep getting good work done? Mm -hmm. And at that point, I was like, yeah, I'm hooked. There's huge impact. The people are amazing. It really reminds me of Google in the early days, um, just in terms of like passion and the, mm -hmm. the willingness to think about how to do the right thing. And, uh, and so now I've been there a little over two and a half years. Yeah. And you use words like hooked and passion and... What is it? Is it just seeing results and like seeing tangibly this was made more effective mm -hmm. and more efficient? And it's the human stories. Uh, we talked to a veteran named Charles who calls the VA every day at 9 a.m. because the phone lines open up at 8 a.m. and he lets the phone line backlog work off just to check his status of a, what's called a disability claims appeal. And so we're not doing rocket science. We're, we, take, we took a system that the call center had and put it online so that Charles doesn't have to call the call center every day and waste two and a half hours every week. Um, it's, it's making a web form so that more veterans can get their benefits online. It's improving a service so that uh, you know, a soldier and his family can move across the country. Uh, it's making it easier for a small business to get certified so that they can compete for federal contracts. It's making it easier for doctors to submit their payments to Medicare. Uh, and so I remember Mikey Dickerson coming back to Google and giving a talk and basically saying, I had a chance to help this thing that gave healthcare for 24 million people, um, or I could be an SRE at Google for a little while longer. And how do you know? How mm -hmm. can you weigh mm -hmm. that and not say I'm going to go do this impactful thing? Uh, and there's hard, super frustrating days. Oh, I was going to say, right? Yeah, no, it's it's government. There's a lot of like how many times? <laughs> right? How many times are you like, well, uh, but this is how we've done it since 1950. <laughs> like, well, yes, but right, and and that's why we end up with systems written in the 1950s <laughs> right, right, right. that have not been modernized since. Yeah, it's not the the wild thing is anyone who is listening to your podcast, I would almost guarantee that they have a set of skills that they could come in and help the government do something better, either as an engineer or a product manager or a designer or a bureaucracy hacker, someone who can help the government get things done better because we have ways of doing things in the technology industry that just have not made it into government. Governments like a lot of government is frozen in about 1995. Does the bureaucracy, uh, when you come in and say, we're going to help you do things better, do they welcome you with open arms? Aha, uh -huh. that's a great question. And I should say government technology is frozen yeah, in 1990. Yeah. It's interesting. I used to use the word bureaucrat a lot uh, whenever I was thinking about coming to serve in government, and now I use civil servant. Yeah. Because what you actually find is incredibly smart, passionate, committed people who want to do the right thing but are not empowered to do the right thing, and they're sometimes bound up with red tape. So they already often have the right ideas for how to make things work better. We just elevate those people empower them and get sure, make sure that their ideas make it to where it needs to be heard. So I wouldn't, you know, the U.S. Digital Service is not people who are smarter, the, not people who are better. We're just people who can come in from the outside who are empowered at a high level to the, to we can find the truth, we can find the people's voices who need to be elevated and empower them to get to the right level of decision maker. And you said you've been doing this for how many years now? Two and a half years plus a little bit. Got to keep going? I'm gonna, I've still got some gas in the tank. There's still a lot of work to do. And, and I will just throw in my one shameless plug. If you go to usds.gov um, slash join, mm -hmm. uh, if you have autocomplete turned on in your browser and a resume ready, you can apply in two minutes. And there's no obligation. That's All you do is you talk to you know, a recruiter who sees whether it might be a match or not. You know, or we look at the resume and we're like, okay, right now it wouldn't be the, the best match. There's literally no downside to being like, could I help make government better? Because a lot of the times the answer is yes. Mm. All right, before we end with the nice questions, um, <laughs> uh, please indulge me. Yeah. The, the people fighting <laughs> fake news, the Twitters, uh, the Facebooks, yeah. you said you had thoughts. You don't have to share, share a thought or two about oh. the, this battle. Is, is, it, is the scale impossible? So... I don't think the scale is impossible because um, we have seen individual, like, for example, 
people used to think that there was no way to pull the spamminess back from Google back in the early days, and we totally did. There were people who were selling links, you know, under the under the table and not disclosing that. And we were able to take enough action where, for the most part, that is still like often a disreputable corner. Regular, like magazines and newspapers don't sell links, you know, and, and pay for page rank, that sort of thing. I think Twitter is interesting because it has been such a free speech wing of the free speech, you know, aspect that I think they woke up a little late to the problem of bots. And I think there is still a lot of room for just straight spam fighting on bots um, and you know and if that helps on misinformation great um, but it is interesting that you now see a lot of interest from the different companies to say okay our trust is bound up with how much people can use us and trust that they'll get good results mm -hmm. and so it, it does feel like it's a little late in coming but there's been an awakening and and these companies are taking it seriously now on another level is it possible that there, there does need to be some degree of actual human curation? You know, speaking as someone who got to work with an amazing team of people at, at Google who would take manual action when something violated our guidelines and we couldn't find a way for computers to stop the problem, I think there is room for that. I think that can be part of a scalable model where, and then the stuff that the, the team finds can feed into the training examples for the next generation of algorithms. And you got to be really careful and like define your terms carefully and say mm -hmm. this is spam. You don't want to pull ideology into mm -hmm. it. You don't mm -hmm. want to you know slant things. You don't want to be known as the truth police. But I do think that there are people you know really hungry to make sure that companies are doing everything they can to provide reputable, high quality results. Is there also? I don't even know how to frame this the right way. That a lot of these companies, it's always been more is better, more sharing, more posting, more everything yes. is better. So is it almost like you have to take a philosophical yes. Yes. change Absolutely. how to think about that? And Google had that with the Panda update where you, know, you don't just want more content that you can then also have ads on. You want higher quality content, so you don't want content farms. And I think Facebook probably had a metric where they just maximized engagement which is a first approximation, a good thing to do, mm -hmm. and have started to move towards sort of meaningful social interactions. And so it's not just how long are you sitting there in front of Facebook. I think there is a realization that at some point that goes too far. Mm -hmm. And you have to, now it's tricky to, to figure out how to define a meaningful social interaction. But at least now they're struggling with those issues and trying to get to the right answer. Um, we're here at TED and the your your TED talk is still one I think one of the most popular of all yeah, time. I'm, yeah that, I'm secretly very proud it's in the top 30 40 yeah right and it's uh, trying something new every 30 days every 30 days yeah you still try to do that or I do too busy what so what's the new thing right now I'm doing two 30 different <clears throat> 30 day challenges at the same time one is on weekdays I am going vegetarian mm. So, you know, it's an easy thing to do. You swap out chicken for tofu, yeah. throw some spice on it. You really don't even notice. Yeah. Uh, the other one is, and this is a little self-referential, I'm actually, I go for a run and then I will do some crunches and a few push-ups and a little cat camel, you know, cat cow kind of yoga stretches. Yeah. And I do that while watching a TED Talk. We were saying that so before we started, So it's about 15 yeah. minutes. And so I, I wake up about 15 minutes earlier every day, but I get a little bit more exercise and stretching. And it just helps to try out some new habits, and sometimes you want to adopt those. Uh, what do you think of that mattcuts.org, how, how oh. Matt Cuts has helped you? <laughs> that was really, really neat. Uh, so for folks who don't know, uh, a few months ago, uh, uh, my wife passed away. It was of, um, while I was in recruiting out in San Francisco, and she was in Omaha. And uh, the SEO community really showed up in a big way. A lot of people, my, my team at the digital service has been phenomenal. And I really appreciate that. Uh, but uh, Barry Schwartz started mattcuts.org. And so people who were in the search industry and were affected by, uh, by Google or, or you know, interactions that we'd had just posted stories. And uh, you know, when there's a rough day, there's nothing like opening up that website and just yeah. seeing a little happiness to, to get you through it. Well, but you're, it's, there's so, maybe... <laughs> I don't know if all industries are like this, but there's so few people in tech that are universally just known as a good 
he's a good guy. Like everyone, <laughs> there's not a, I can't think of anyone that would say a bad word about you. So yeah, like, I you. mean, it's, it's legitimately, that's what I loved about that site is it gave a, a, a release valve for the, this goodwill that's always been there for you. So yeah. yeah. It was, I, I talk to my parents about once a week on, I call them on Sunday and usually dad would be like, hey, did you see the story on MattGuts.org? <laughs> so he read it every day and he mm-hmm. was incredibly proud and he actually submitted a story that showed up. Uh, so it does, it feels really good. I am so grateful to have gotten to, you know, participate in the growth of Google, but also to get to talk to so many fantastic people outside of Google as a part of that, you know, because it's a great reminder of every, with great power comes great responsibility yeah. and channeling those voices back into the company. You enjoy uh, living in D.C.? D.C. is great. Yeah. I lived in Mountain View, Los Altos, yeah. California, which is yeah. a little bit of suburban sprawl. So the idea that you can bike to work yeah. and get great food, you know, I've never lived in New York, but D.C. feels like mm-hmm. the version of New York with training wheels on a little bit, maybe, like, you know. I'll tell you something, <laughs> and, and people listening know who they are, but I've recruited about five people from San Francisco to Brooklyn mm. over the last several years. Mm-hmm. I'm working on somebody right now. Ah. So uh, maybe when, when you're done with your tour of duty, <laughs> I'll show you Park Slope sometime. Um, so the, um, you're... You got a Bruce Springsteen concert. That's why you're here. <laughs> that's a, I literally, they're like, he's only going to be around on Broadway for another month or so. So I have to go see Springsteen. Yeah. Well, enjoy it. Right on. I I'm actually, a great show. I'm going with a friend who was one of the other three people who started that day at Google. So uh, it's really good to have those relationships. But um, very happy to be on the podcast. And thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Matt. Absolutely. If you like what you've heard on this episode, please support us by subscribing to the podcast so you can get great news stories and conversations every two weeks. And please buy the book that was based on this podcast, How the Internet Happened from Netscape to the iPhone, by me, Brian McCullough. Order it now wherever books are sold. How the Internet Happened. <laughs>